0: Promise No Promises Seeing into the Heart of Things The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series. Seeing into the Heart of Things, Earth and Equality within Indigenous and Ancestral Knowledges. This collection of episodes emerged from the Master Symposium in fall, moderated by Truce Martinez and Quinn Latimer, at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, in collaboration with Culturescapes 2021, Amazonia. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to discussing indigenous thought, decolonial feminisms and the political possibilities of the mythic imagination. Certain questions will preoccupy us. How do indigenous cosmologies create forms for resistance? How does the Western imaginary of the Amazon, from its roots in racial capitalism to its corporate tech paternalistic present, cloud our understanding of how its people and non-human spirits narrate themselves? How do ecological and decolonial practices find their form in the visual and oral matrices of indigenous narratives across the world? Since the long 16th century, the organization of the world has found its hegemonic form in hierarchies of power and possession. Between those who exploit and expropriate and those who are exploited, and whose lives, lands, and resources are expropriated. This is not the past, nor a function of ideology only. If the projected supremacy of one form of life over all others is only made possible by manifold forms of violence, one of these forms remains the invention and constant reinvention of nature by colonial cultures. This invention rests on an idea of progress in which nature is construed as what one emerges from. Indigenous ancestral epistemologies hold a different understanding of the real, though. The land owns us, Aboriginal Australians might say. This podcast series features talks of Vandria Borari, translated by Carolina Brunelli, Katerina Botanova with Quinn Latimer, Paulina Fyodorov, Katya Garcia Anton, Davi and Dario Kopanawa, translated by Sara Salta Lamakchia, Nobotic with Anna Gathon Sabugal, Jeremy Narby, and Ashvika Raman. Dialogue by Artist Duo Nobotic. Ivan Wilhelm and Christian Hübler, with Anna Garthon-Sabogal. Nobotic investigates geoontological entanglements in neo- and postcolonial contexts. Techno-aesthetics and technopolitical aspects shape their somatic and empathic artistic practices and formats. Nobotic question and enact molecular, psychotropic and derivative forces and are currently focusing on narration of mercury in the interrelationship between Colombia and Switzerland. On the research journey to Colombia, they met with the foundation Más Arte, Más Acción, a non-profit cultural foundation that generates critical thinking through art based in Choco, a region on the Pacific side of Colombia. Ana Garzón-Sabugal worked from 2013 to 2021 as a project coordinator and director at Más Arte, Más Acción. Currently, she is part of Mercury Body's remote evocation study program.
1: I think I would like to to start with the topic of North and South Chiefs. The first conversation with the Proibetia agents generates some noise about working on the, the format of bringing Swiss people to Colombia. However, there was certain trust that the program offered because of the organizers and because they were willing to listen to any proposal from our side. I went to Quipdo not long before the Swiss. My first time was in 2017. The destination was always Nuki in the northern Pacific coast of Colombia, where the Masarte Masacción Art Residency is located. To go there, you have to fly. You can make a stopover in Medellin or Quipdo, the capital of Chuco, where we always flew via Medellin. At that time, we knew something about Corporal Oteca, Motete, all of whom already participate here at the festival, and a series of relevant projects and processes in the city. We began to make longer stops in Quibdó in order to make our relation with the Pacific more complex. When Yolanda Choice, an artist and curator in Colombia, shared with me the work of Paco Gomez-Nadal, I began to hear an untold story. It was clear that the stereotypical image of the Pacific that a white mestizo person from the center of Bogota might have was mutating after five years of working between Nuki and Buenaventura. Apart from the regional simplifications learned in the limit maps and categories of the school, yet the historical layers of this territory have wanted to be silenced in order to continue exercising territorial control by the white mestizo class that holds the power in Colombia. And me, standing there, coming and going, white Mestiza, the image of a colonial guilt, feeling the great responsibility for not exhausting the questions, for not taking the problem for granted, for not operating as just another NGO that brings the solutions, questioning, of course, the privilege that the institutionally offered me to enter and leave, which also from the art practice, it's possible to establish an intimacy with the people and process that was getting to know. There's no way of going to Choco that doesn't imply a responsibility, and not a responsibility of the political correctness, but that of getting involved, of listening.
2: My topic is being situated. Should all this look familiar? I'm s- sitting in a long wooden boat on the Atuará River in Afro Colombia, in preparation for this trip on the Atuará River in Quito. I have been up and down it a few times on Google Maps. Despite initial hesitation to accept the invitation to us, the Artist duo robotic by the institution Mas Arte Mas Acción in Bogotá, supported by Pro Helvetia, we finally finally decided to make the trip. We thought perhaps it was important, especially when one is critical of intercultural exchange program, to force encounter with, with people, landscape, objects, and other living things. In the course of the project, these encounters took on a name. We call them unlikely encounters. I always Imagine the encounter with this river as a linear. A line that appeared so clearly in the vertical satellite image is not traceable for me in this boat. To be honest, I don't even know exactly which direction we're going. There is no home button to to relocate me. But but I am not alone. I look over at my fellow travellers. We are predominantly white collective body, held together by a wooden hull and propelled across the water's surface by an outboard motor. Conversation is hardly possible. It is loud and uncomfortable. And yet, we are all touched to be in the heart of this river. So I am just alone with my memories of a comparable river journey across the Suriname River more than ten years ago. In a country that is similar ignored in global attention as Afro-Columbia. It lies on the other side of this continent. The journey back then was more comfortable. The bold, bigger, and an old schoolmate of my mother, who was a writer, had reappraised, no, rather romanticised the post-colonial history of Suriname, described the shore regions over a loudspeaker system and named the old plantation, which were now invisible because, in the meantime, totally ruined. Shortly before reaching the plantation where my mother had often spent her holidays with an uncle, the manager of the plantation, the boat turned around and restarted the hour-long return journey to the capital, Paramaribo. Nevertheless, the people on board enjoyed the information boat tour in an excellent mood and appreciated the hot Caribbean food. The Suriname River flowed quietly in its bed and seemed to carry its colonial and extractive story silently with it. While I was indulging in my private memories, my travel colleagues dipped her beautiful pale hands rhythmically into the passing water and filmed this with her digital camera. It seems like a provocation. This water, this river, this atrato had nothing calming about it all because it flows quickly in this here and now and not buffered in historical distance. One possible encounter. To this day, I still have itchy scars on my legs from insect bites caused by mosquitoes in bochasha Also, I was wearing long trousers that day, following the general advice for traveling in the rainforest, The fabric was obviously too thin for the aggressive insects that might not find much food in this abandoned place. We move very carefully across the memorial site and listen to the stories of our guide who spent his childhood here. He lived here before large parts of the population when they were seeking shelter in the village church, were killed in a failed operation by the guerrilla movement FARC against the paramilitaries, On site, we find no information about what happened here, apart from a small plate at the entrance to the church. Just a few days ago, we went to the photo exhibition, The Witness, by the celebrated Colombian photographer, Jesus Abad Colorado, at the German Colombian Institute, CAPAC, in Bogota. Rooms upon rooms full of reportage and press photos of the political conflict in Colombia between the different violent forces in the country, which have been documented documented for decades. The images were dominated by the suffering faces of the civilian population, all too often looking directly into the camera, despairing, crying and suffering. I wondered how these press photos of such significance could be attributed to a single authorship. The description in a whole text read, the man who photographed a little pictured wall. All the pictures were black and white, accurately hung on the smooth walls and carefully captioned. I barely managed to shed my long trained white cube ignorance and endured the amount of these direct stars looking at me from the photographs. And then I stand in front of and in the ruins of the abandoned place and try to envision the press photos from the exhibition. To be honest, I don't succeed. The site exudes an intense calm and also serenity. The basketball court next to the ruins of the church is completely overgrown, but almost still inviting. The trees have intense red and appealing fragrant flowers to which we travellers almost all succumb. The artist curator and his cameraman quietly discuss where to set up their tripod and from which angle to photograph the ruins. I move slowly towards the boat, a swarm of of mosquitoes following me. We are in the malaria area and I don't have the appropriate prophylaxis.
1: To these days, I have not looked Yvonne and Christian in the eye, nor have I been to Rio Quito in Quito, nor have I been to Bojaya. On one of those stops in Quito, Alejandra, my colleague, met John Marie Nestrosa from the Cuenta Choco project, and she turned into the office in Bogota to tell us that they were having a great festival of Afro and indigenous literature and that the way it was planned made the literature enter through the body. Once talking to John Mer, we were preparing the trip of the Swiss, in generic terms, in the Atrato. He told us to take out the program so many explanations, historical data, theories and conceptualization of the situation in the Atrato. He said, he believed that when they arrived here, they would have already read and studied maps and papers about this region. They know more about us than we do. His proposal was that they will take something with them that they didn't know. His proposal was to incorporate experience. That the theory would be conforming to them and that walking to the territory will establish a common ground for the bond. Almost after three years, after the first meeting, I'm in front of you, once again, talking to Yvonne through a screen, fabulating about body of water and bodies of mercury. Critically analyzing the phenomenon of extractivism and its production. Lucas Ospina said, cynically, kind of, in a text of mining, we are traveling fast on the train pulled by the mining that grant us enough leisure to descend. We want to counter the velocity of, of the progress with unhurried analysis. In fact, pretty savage capitalism is, in the end, a product of savage capitalism itself. All this considered mining is very efficient at its own dysfunctionality. At Trato River, the institution, a hostile, hostile temporality, the people here and there are, as Ospina said, the phenomena that art allows us to analyze, descend, and paradoxically and slowly construct an improbable bond.
2: In the first days after our arrival in Colombia, our hosts also took us to an exhibition dedicated to the 215th anniversary of Alexander von Humboldt's birth. It is a solidly designed exhibition with many original documents and drawings by the so-called polymath Humboldt himself. I am impressed by the original edition of Humboldt's travelogues and the iconic diagrammatic representation of Mount Chimborazo with all its designated climate zones drawn and labelled by Humboldt. But over time I started to have some doubts. Humboldt's presumption and the global adoration of his diagrammatic invention of the geological cross-section, not only through the mountain but through the entire South American continent, seemed very presumptuous to me. Later, I read what an art critic and a historian of science writes about it, quote, Every stroke is a theory about what remains hidden from view. She praises Humboldt's visionary qualities of her presentation of being able to make the invisible visible. But you can see it also vice versa. Did Humboldt perfected a reductionist method of abstraction that he had learned during his training at the Prussian Mining Academy in Freiberg at the end of the 18th century? The procedure consists of leaving out many things and details that might obscure what one wants to see. And isn't he thus the father of an imperial visuality which, with which technology-assisted explorative expeditions nowadays move through the rainforest, when they be bend low over cartographies, cartographies and visual models? The wooden display Cases immediately next to Humboldt's documents were the photographic images of the book titled Indian Types from the Amazon region according to his own photographs taken during his journey in Brazil by Dr. Theodor Koch-Grunberg from 1906. Photographs were taken using the classical Bertillonage technique, that means facing the camera once from the front once from the left, once from behind. This is a forensic technique that was originally developed in the early days of criminology and was quickly adapted by the discipline of ethnography. The photographs promise objectivity and, in deutschen word, sachlichkeit, producing stereotypes of indigenous women and men. We asked the Colombian assistant curator who was present whether there was also a mediating contextualization of these, in my view, very sensitive representations. The answer was that in this context, the picture, were very important documentations of the diversity of the indigenous tribes at the beginning of the 20th century. He said further, he did, not want to spe- uh, he did not want to speculate here on what we in Europe interpret into these images on the basis of our historical reappraisals. As the non-aligned
1: Prime Minister Leonor Silvestri says, good is the vehicle for the worst catastrophes. In Chocó, the commitment of philanthropy is the well-known, best, the best parade Multiples NGOs that enter and leave the territory with their own agendas, because they do know how to solve the problem of Choco, as if Choco were a problem. The presence of international cooperation has not only been the spearhead for sustaining the Colombia laboratory. The entry of these funds Institutionally, your logic has imposed a logic of cultural management that has strongly affected the projects of the autonomy and emancipation of Chocó. The Chocó has been a land of resistance from colonial times to the present, in spite of all of the politics of death that has been established in the territories of Colombia. Through the Law 70 of the 93, the Black communities in their struggle for land, were able to obtain the title of 3,203,000 hectares through the issuing of 61 titles benefiting nearly 32,000 of Afro-Colombian families. It is not a coincidence that this has the other side of the coin, which means the intensification of the work for the control of the land. Although Black people can legally own their land, there are economic interests, multinational drug traffickers, insurgents who disposes people to exploit the land with the help of the current public officials process the license. Paco says, the Chocuanos recognize their own footprints, and those of so many have traveled on the territory, and they want to adjust accounts not for revenge, but to the rich, a starting point that will make it possible for the first time to build their own utopian historical project, an adjustment similar to what which the Caribbean is demanding from the old metropolis, which they are asking to pay off the debt that left the island tied to anchor of oblivion that prevents them from dreaming in a different way to that which was determined by their colonizers. Let's talk about the debt. That unpayable, that brokenness, can the the, debt become a principle of elaboration?
2: We met Vladimir C, a a Colombian malaria researcher in the Trotti Juan Valdez Museum Café of the National Museum in Bogota, and sharing the last chocolate cake because it is shortly before the closing of the museum. We, Nobotic, were working on a project about the so called neglected diseases and the entanglements between the Swiss pharmaceutical industry and global biocapitalism, and are interested in Vladimir's research on malaria resistance in the communities of the Colombian gold miners, forced by the misuse of the Novartis malaria treatment coatem. In view of the lack of medical investigation into many tropical diseases, we, who come from Switzerland are concerned with the following questions. Who determines the allocation of research budgets worth millions and which diseases are investigated, where and how? And what does this look like from the perspective of a country in which the neglected diseases are not negligible? And where does the immense force of the pharmaceutical concerns come from, which calls themselves... Philanthropic, when investing in drug development for neglected diseases, and thereby deciding, and at least decide who may and must live and who must die. We try to talk to him about his opinion on the great philanthropic initiatives of Melinda and Bill Gates, who have set the eradication of the malaria virus and the victory over cancer as their personal goal in life. But he kindly but firmly blocks our attempts to show solidarity with him on the level of critique of this phenomenon on Western supremacy immediately. Without this foundation of Bill Gates and Melinda Gates, he said, he would not be able to do research at all. The foundation is the only institution which gives him free access to the big data on the international research communities. He appreciates their, quote, commitment to philanthropy. We find this phrase on the website of the Giving Pledge, a charitable campaign created 2010 by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. It says, quote, the Giving Pledge is a commitment by the world's wealthiest individuals and families to dedicate the majority of their wealth to giving back. We would have liked to talk to Vladimir See about what this giving back could mean from this point of view. During our research for the project Swiss Psychotropic Gold, I met Yolanda Ariadne Collins in the summer of 2019. She was a speaker in the artistic symposium two days of earthly delights at the Korpersbau in Berlin, and spoke about the globally demanded protection of the Amazon rainforest as an important carbon dioxide absorber. Trained in environmental science and international relations, she was an ICI research fellow in Berlin at that time and has been thematically deeply connected to the UN global environment protection program such as Red Plus what means reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. She puts this huge imperative of care in relation to the local economies of the often illegally operating small-scale gold miners. I addressed her after her speech in Dutch because I was very interested in her topics in the context of our gold research project. She laughed and replied in English that she was from British Guiana and did not speak Dutch, the official language in Suriname. So we switched to English. We met several times after that in different contexts in Berlin, but we talked more about her maturation in Berlin, the disinterest of her colleagues on her research topic, and what it means to graduating as a black woman in different European institutions in the Netherlands, Hungary, and the UK. It was some time later that I read her paper with the title Colonial Residue, Red Plus, Territorialization and the Racialized Subject in Guyana and Suriname. She emphasizes the basic colonial structure of the approach whereby the global north distributes funds to the governments with large shares of primary rainforest, so that they take action against deforestation caused by the increasing number of artisanal and small-scale gold miners in the area. Ariadne criticizes, as a result of her research, that the racializing relations in this context are mostly ignored or underrepresented. The ruling class of mulattos in Suriname accept the monetary payment from the global environmental institution, but displaces the artisanal and small-scale gold miners who are very often descendants of the Maroons, the escaped slave society in the rainforest, without being offered alternatives to subsistence. I realized that at that moment I agree with her about our common area of interest of the increasing destruction of the rainforest by the gold miners in Suriname. I had not thought about the fact that the social status of my middle-class mulatto family part could be problematic. In this general simplification of black and white, good and evil, white and wrong, I had always seen myself on the white side. In Chocó,
1: it's not only the bodies of mercury that impose coloniality through the rivers and the rains. On the North Pacific coast, there is a ghost called Puerto de Triuga, located in the municipality of Niquí, where Mazarte Mazacean is based. Ethnic authorities and social organizations have worked for the last 30 years to care for the protect the coastal marine ecosystem in order to guarantee the sustainability of their community through an harmonious relationship with their economic practices such as fishing, agriculture, and tourism. In 2017, the port construction lobby's warnings went off social organizations, NGOs, and local organizations that make decisions about the territory, example, the community council, the resguardos, and the mayor office, we create a broad working group that would allow us to think from the difference in the work of each of us and work towards a common objective to defend the vision of the well-being and development that the local communities are building in a territory against the politics of death and its homogenizing advance. At the time, enthusiastic activists and filmmakers from Medellin began filming a high production documentary. They brought in scientists and famous anthropologists shoot the landscape with the lenses and cameras showing the exuberance and exotism of the biodiversity of this territory. They spoke of its ecosystem importance and the urgency of stopping any attempt to build a seaport. The dominant aesthetic they used at the different times was the best national geographic style. However, like the Badlands, Terra Nullius appeared as, a song, as the song said, La Tierra del Olvido, in which only the landscapes appeared, but not its inhabitants. And in the few occasions they appeared, they reproduced the cultural stereotypes once again, essentializing the communities. As ancestors and guardians, while one of the hand, the narrative of these campaigns gains space in the national and international public opinion, on the other, they lose legitimacy in the local communities who have been the true guardians of the territory. Chocuanos claim that the environmental activists only care about the rainforest and the whales. They ignore all the legal community and resistant efforts that for years, the Afro and indigenous communities have had to sustain so that this pristine territory can be filmed and valued by the scientists and anthropologists. This documentary, which enters and leads Choco in a form of an expedition, makes invisible the efforts of of all the collective work that has been done against the port in which the language the image, the legal tools, the strategical moments that have been carefully held. It is not only a work against the port, it is a work for dignity and the defense of a notion of well being of the indigenous community and the vivir sabroso of the Black communities. In Chocó, there is no consensus on the relevance or otherwise of the port the pedagogy and the door-to-door awareness raising work that the territorial leaders are doing is much greater, including a perspective of audiovisual sovereignty. I resonate now with the reflection of Jennifer Titz on the work in Carolina Caicedo and the Communities in Resistance, problematizing that the imaginary of the landscape as an apparatus instead of body as territory, in this case, a collective body.
0: Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel. Conceived as a think tank, tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods, to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Editing and voiceover, Elena Zieser Music, Niklas Kammermeier Research team Tabia Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel, and Chris Handberg. Copyright at Institute Art, Gender, Nature HDK FHNW 2022.